seated. I'd like to begin with you a new study in God's Word this morning on Paul's second letter to, excuse me, P- Peter's second letter to the church. Second um, Peter chapter 1. I'll uh, just mention, even though the uh, recipients aren't specified, he mentions a little later in the letter, this is now his second letter to them, therefore we are well advised to, that, that this is also given to the various churches in Asia and its various provinces, or Asia Minor, as the province was also known, and uh, having a different emphasis and focus. Let's come today to Second Peter chapter 1, and I'd like to read to you down to verse 11, although we'll be spending most of the time in the first part of this. Second Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given, rather, rather, uh, sorry, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness, and has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble." For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as you have given us such great and precious promises, as you have given us grace and peace through the knowledge of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, we pray that you would teach us that wisdom and knowledge today, that you would help us likewise to understand such great words and to pursue such a great goal as this, and we pray that the words that uh, you have given to teach us would so grow us in this fall season. We would look back and thank God that we have come again to this part of your word, and we pray that you would bless it to us then for Christ's sake. Amen. A boy was asked how old he was, And uh, he answered, I'm 12, going on 13, soon to be 14. (laughs) Uh, I appreciate a boy who's eager to grow up, don't you? Um, And and eagerness to grow up doesn't seem to be very common, and boys are really anywhere in our society. Adolescence 
seems now to be stretching into the 20s and the 30s of life, and mature people seem to be harder and harder to find. Christians, for their part, want to grow in grace and knowledge, uh, especially, of course, when they are new in the faith. And yet, that desire to grow often slows down. Uh, As time goes on, progress slows, enthusiasm begins to fade. We tend to become spiritually complacent. Um, I uh, read about an old... uh, farmer who used to say that as a Christian, well, I'm not making much progress, but I'm established. Well, one spring when he was hauling some logs, his wheels sank down to the axles in mud, and as he stood there viewing his dismal situation, a Christian neighbor came by, one who'd always been pretty uncomfortable with uh, that man's worn-out testimony. He called out, well, Brother Jones, I see that you're not making much progress. But you must be content because you're well-established. It was his way of pointing out, spiritually speaking, you're stuck. Sometimes established just means stuck. If you're stuck spiritually, God wants you to get unstuck and to grow. Healthy children grow. Children, it's, it's good that you are where you are now, but it's not good for you to stay there because everyone knows children need to grow. You parents know that if your children aren't growing, then there's something terribly wrong. Parents get very alarmed if their children are not developing. And so it is with the children of God. And I say to each one of you, it's not wrong for you to be there, but it is wrong for you to stay where you are now. All of us, every last one, have a great deal of growing to do. Now, uh, you heard the announcement earlier that uh, next Sunday is Move Up Sunday, and if you're not from this church, you're like, well, moving, moving up where? Where are we, where are we going, right? Um, something you want to tell me, Pastor, about a rapture coming or something? I don't know. Anyway, uh, so no, 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 no. Uh, that means that uh, you, if the children have reached a certain age where they are now able to move up to the next class, if they've grown to this age, if they've grown, they need to move up. Well, all of us need to grow and move up. I want this Sunday, next Sunday, and every Sunday now to be Move Up Sunday for the church, to grow and to move up. Uh, We're going to have Move Up for children. We're going to have Move Up for adults as we study this letter. Peter is writing this letter to help you to grow. The letter famously ends with the benediction I'll end with today, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, actually, he says. And you could sum up the theme of this letter of 2 Peter. Knowing Christians should be growing Christians. Well, if you don't have any concern to grow in grace, it's because there's no grace in you. Uh, A piece of dead wood doesn't grow. If you're a living branch, you grow. Dead things don't grow. And so to be a living Member of Christ is to grow, and I say our American cultural plague of immaturity has, alas, affected the church. Um, Evangelist Errol Hulse wrote, in our generation, we have increasingly suffered from spiritual lethargy and powerlessness. 
there is a high percentage of weak and lukewarm Christians in Western churches who evidence little interest in growing in grace and knowledge. The church may be bustling with activity and at the same time be infiltrated and permeated with the world's thinking and doing. It is sometimes the case that our bright forms of worship camouflage a dead spiritual condition. Well said. Healthy churches are concerned with church growth, not merely numbers, but not growing numbers merely, growing, growing disciples, growing members. You can't be a baby Christian for a whole lifetime, and growth is not an optional extra. So um, you wonder, well, what about having a childlike faith? Well, childlike faith is a great thing, but there's a big difference between having a childlike faith and a childish faith. A childlike faith means that we maintain an implicit trust and an awesome wonder and a tender ear to our Heavenly Father. A childish faith means that we refuse to grow and we cling to a diet of milk when we need solid food. The Word of God, therefore, calls us all to maturity. And that will be the special focus of our study of Second Peter, which we begin today. Now, as Peter writes this letter, I... We'll show you later on, he makes mention that he knows he's about to die. He's about to leave the scene, and so you know that those parting words are often very urgent, and they're very, uh, very important and sweet. Peter's about to depart and be with the Lord, and his final word to them now is to keep on growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. In the part that we just read, he says this uh, positively, that the more that you give yourself and devote yourself to growth in grace, practically speaking, the more assured and effective and fruitful you are going to be. And on the other side, he says you're not going to stumble or drift back. This is how each one of you in the church as a whole must uh, protect yourself against the, the great errors and the deceit and the immorality which he's going to describe in, in chapter 2. It's, that's corrupting the church already. Uh, <coughs> this is now Peter's second letter, of course. Uh, the first letter he wrote to help the churches in Asia to deal with the external threat of Roman persecution that was going to come on them very severely. But this second letter is written to help Christians deal with the internal threat of the corruption that is now inside the church. Uh, honestly, that's a far more powerful and lethal threat, one that's also just as timely for us. Um, God's, God's people tend to be far more worried about official persecution than corruption. But, but frankly, cor- persecution is, is usually helpful for us, and corruption usually claims many Christians and churches as a whole. Although Peter has some very pointed words in the next chapter, you notice that he takes a positive approach to this problem here in the letter, here in chapter 1 especially. We are never safer than when we are getting stronger. Just like on a bicycle, it's far easier to keep your balance when you're moving forward than when you're standing still. 
I'd like to consider with you three things this morning from the passage. Uh, first, the promise, my longest point to you by far. Uh, second, the program that I'll just introduce and we'll consider at length next week. And thirdly, the passion, the, the promise, the program, the passion. And this will cover the why, the what, and the how of Christian maturity as we consider it this morning from the passage. First, the promise, the promise, especially participating in the divine nature, as Peter puts it, the promise, especially participating in the divine nature. Verses uh, 3 and 4, he, which you, you note here seems to refer to Jesus, the most, uh, the closest uh, name, antecedent, his Jesus' divine power, uh, interesting phrase, has given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which uh, have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these, uh, so that through these, you may be partakers of the divine nature. The French, whom I don't usually quote, the French have a proverb that goes like this. A good meal ought to begin with hunger. And I think it's true for this study as well. Since growth comes from many good spiritual meals, we need likewise to gain a hunger. A hunger for God, for his promises, for his divine power mentioned here, that in order that, the uh, phrase of purpose, we might be partakers of the divine nature. A phrase that borders on heresy, don't you think? That we might be partakers or sharers, participants in the divine nature. What does that mean, you ask? Well, before I answer it, I, I will point out that this actually isn't so much a, a Christian or a biblical way of speaking, so much as a pagan one. I don't know if that surprises you or not. Um, uh, first of all, divine power, mentioned earlier, is, is not biblical terminology, but it is the only time that, that phrase appears in the Bible. However, that phrase is very common in the pagan writings of the period. As one, one scholar even put it, quote, a standard term in Greek literature. That was the way they talked about it and thought about it, divine power. And I think it's especially true since he's writing to the churches of Asia, which are, uh, seems like every mystery, religion, and cult uh, had its origin there. Divine power and mystery religion, all, all, the, all the rage. Um, but to explain, what, what people were looking for then... And what people are still looking for now is something better. Something better. Something greater. Tra transcendent, if you like. Not just a little better, but on the next level. And there was all kinds of suggestions, believe me, all kinds of suggestions about how that might be found or done. Um, and it hasn't changed. You, you need to know this about your neighbors and the people that you're rubbing shoulders with at work. They, they, they want the next level. They want something more, something greater. They, 
They want a richer, deeper life, even if they struggle to describe it. It's not just that they want money and power, although they want that, although that, a lot of, frankly, a lot of religion in the ancient world had to do with those things too. Um, but um, more than that, especially as this phrase was used, they wanted more power, divine power of some kind over, over themselves and over the forces that shape their daily lives in the world. They want this to make them happier than they are now. In various ways, they themselves want to be better people than they are now. Certainly, they want to feel fulfilled and satisfied or complete or whole, some of these buzzwords from the time. So, in, in many ways, this was the goal of these uh, pagan religions, not just the Greco-Roman idolatry that we're more familiar with, but also with these uh, Asian mystery religions and magic and Phrygian magic, so-called, that were fascinating the people of Asia. They, they, were, they were seeking after divine power. And um, this uh, goal is uh, stated here in the same words, interestingly. He has given us his divine power, that Christ seems to be Jesus our Lord, his divine power. And the goal of this divine power is not an end in itself. The goal was that, again in their terms, that they might partake of the divine nature. Still looking at me like, what? Okay, I mean, there was a lot of talk about this in Peter's day. And, and I think interestingly, here we are back again. There's a lot of similar talk in our day, much more than in previous centuries in the Western world. Part of it is that if you don't believe in God, frankly, you'll believe in anything. And all kinds of new age and mysticism is now being resurrected and goes a lot of under the same terms even. Uh, um, these, uh, these, these teachers, the gurus, the New Agers, uh, telling you that, that you can participate in the divine nature, they, they promise, in, in virtually the same words. Um, and there's pantheism, that God is everywhere, and there's panentheism, that God is in all things, including you, and all these things are being promoted again, and I, I won't get much into it, I'm about to leave this subject, but if you read Peter Jones, who occasionally speaks at Ligonier, you, you will be surprised to learn just how large this resurgence of paganism is in its various forms of mystical spirituality and how it's attracting multitudes and multitudes of people, big names, celebrities, and um, how, how this is now part and parcel even of American spirituality, strikingly. But the point is, the point of all this is, in this letter... Peter is putting his teaching in terms that are rather familiar to his readers in order to say that what the whole culture is looking for could only be found in Jesus Christ through his divine power. That what they want, at least the best of what they want, is found in Jesus. This divine power by which we may participate in the divine nature. Okay, well, that's just background information, which seems pretty optional. You say, what does it mean to participate in the divine nature? That sounds rather exciting. Um, well, it's, frankly, it's better than exciting. To participate in the divine nature, 
Um, to answer that question, I'd like to remind you of that spiritual classic I've recommended to you in the past from Henry Skugel, one of the first good books that I got as a new Christian called The Life of God in the Soul of Man. The Life of God in the Soul of Man. One of the first real books I picked up as a Christian that was also, you might know, used in George Whitfield's conversion. Skugel uh, begins that spiritual classic by saying that, frankly, people are very, very confused about what, what religion is, what true religion is, anyway. Some, of it he's, some people, he says, they put it all in the mind, in uh, the doctrines of the faith and in learning opinions and orthodox notions. And the only account that they can give of their religion, as he puts it, is that they are of this or that persuasion and have joined themselves to one of the many sects in, wherein Christendom is most unhappily divided. What's wrong with those hypocrites, they ask? Don't they care about the truth? Don't they care about the faith? They might ask. Well, others, he says, think that true religion is all about living a good life, being a good person, which certainly involves uh, going to church or giving to those in need and being nice in every way. And what's wrong with those people who just argue about their theology and think they're so much smarter than everyone else when God just wants us to live good lives, they might say. Still others, he writes, thinks that, think that religion is all in the heart. Or as uh, Skugel puts it, um, rather high rhetoric, that true religion consists in rapturous heats and ecstatic devotion. And all that they aim at is to pray with passion and to think of heaven with pleasure and to be affected with those kind and melting expressions wherewith they court their Savior till they persuade themselves that they are mightily in love with him and from thence assume a great confidence of their salvation, which they esteem the chief of Christian graces. End quote. Oh, they may not have heart. They may not have head religion, as they put it. But they have heart religion, and you know which is important, you see. Well, well Skugel says that all, all these actually are important in their own way, um, and at best they are the way that we might pursue or express godliness. However, he writes, real religion is quite another thing. And those who are acquainted with it will entertain far different thoughts and reject all those shadows and false imitations of it. They know by experience that true religion is a union of the soul with God, a real participation of the divine nature, the very image of God drawn upon the soul, or in the apostle's phrase, other apostle, it is Christ formed within us. End quote. The best explanation I ever read. I'm glad I got it early on. We aren't familiar with this phrase, participation or sharing the divine nature, because it's, it's, it's actually not a biblical phrase, it's not a biblical way of speaking. We're much more familiar with 
the other words, uh, union with Christ, being born of the Spirit, or regeneration, and having our, our eyes opened by God, our understanding, our illumination, passing from death to life, or vivification, growing in godliness and the fruit of the Spirit within us, or sanctification, and becoming like Christ in all things, which is supremely fulfilled in glorification. In other words, our, our biblical terminology usually breaks all these things up. And uh, th- this, this, this phrase, if you like, just takes that whole work of God's grace together and to say as a whole that, that what, we, what is happening in, in all these things is a union of the soul with God, a participation of the divine nature in truth, uh, uh, the very image of God upon the soul, Christ formed within us, the whole work of God's grace by which we are joined and renewed and glorified after the image of Christ, taking it all together. We're used to considering these things separately uh, in the West, uh, but interestingly, the Greek Orthodox, they have a word that puts it together they love, they use it all the time, called theosis. Um, But just to explain here from an Orthodox theologian, quote, Um, And not only will God's children behold God's glory, but they themselves will be partakers of it, shining like the sun in the kingdom of their Father, being fellow heirs with Christ, sitting with Christ on the throne and sharing with Him the royal grandeur, the great glorification that's going to just transform you and me and the whole creation and the beholding the face of Christ and, and, and how it will completely, utterly change us from what we are now, even our bodies, uh, the, the goal of all this. Or, or C.S. Lewis described it uh, this way. Think of the most cantankerous, disagreeable, undesirable Christian you know. Don't look around. Just look up here. But think. Think. Because if you could see them the way that they will soon be in glory, you would be tempted to fall down and worship them. You will hardly recognize yourself. Can you imagine what it would be like to have a perfectly pure heart that is absolutely overwhelmed all the time with love for God as it ought to be, and others as it ought to be. You know that from your own experience, some of the greatest, highest, purest, most wonderful and delightful experiences of your life were those moments when you felt that power of love rise in your soul, love for God or love for uh, a husband or wife or children. And those moments seemed all too fleeting, but how wonderful it was when your heart was soaring, how you wished, thinking back on it, that you could always feel that way, that, that that's what it is to be alive somehow. And we've only had just distant glimpses of this in our lives, or of the experience of something just taking our breath away. Can you imagine living in such a state? To live always in that experience, in the utter awe and love of God that takes our breath away, always, the wonder and love of the majesty vying in our hearts, wonder and love, wonder and love all day long. It's only, it's, it's, it's only just barely begun. We're only barely alive now, people. I mean, the power is at work. The promises have been made. It's, it's coming. 
it's even now begun. We've begun to grow in this grace and to learn what it is and to taste and to see that God is good. Peter begins his letter with such words to give us a hunger. A good meal ought to begin with hunger. And if you're going to grow, you need to become hungry. A hunger for God. A.W. Tozer, so good in this subject, puts it pointedly. I want deliberately to encourage this mighty longing after God. The lack of it has brought us to our present low estate. The stiff and wooden quality about our religious lives is a result of our lack of holy desire. Complacency is a deadly foe of all spiritual growth. Acute desire must be present or there will be no manifestation of Christ to his people, for he waits to be wanted. And too bad that with many of us he waits so long, so very long in vain. End quote. Well, Peter is taking a positive approach. I appreciate that. You know, his divine power has given to us, and is even now, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. He's given to us his exceedingly great and precious promises, he says, through which you may be partakers of the divine nature. Point one, my longest point, my appetizer for this study and for the day, participating in the divine nature, the promise. Um, I will go secondly now to the program, which we will be considering at length the next several weeks. Today I just introduced it in a short point, the program of adding to our faith. Adding to our faith, verse 5, but also for this very reason, uh, that is in order that uh, we might recognize and seize these, these great and precious promises, the divine power by which we're able to participate in the divine nature. For this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, and, and so forth. We'll go a little slowly through that starting next week. Now, someone will say, I'm a little surprised or, or confused. You might first ask, what do you mean add to our faith? Aren't we saved and united to Christ and sealed with the Holy Spirit by faith and faith alone? I mean, faith plus, is that what he's saying? That sounds a little suspicious to Protestants, you know. Faith, faith plus? Uh, aren't we saved by faith alone? True. Um, yet we all need faith plus not to be saved, but as he says clearly here in this section, to become fruitful, effective, productive, steadfast, and assured of our salvation, and be able more and more to participate in the divine nature by divine power, because that's what God is, and that's what God is like. And so beginning at faith, we're going to go through all of these, which are in fact divine attributes and virtues. 
we are going to go from faith to love. And if this looks like an overlap with the fruit of the Spirit, I don't think that's accidental. These things are the fruits of the Spirit by God's power and promise. Going from faith, the first one, you notice to love, the last one. That's where the journey is going. Not just for its own sake, but again, because God is love. And if you're starting this journey, perhaps, you're, perhaps you want to start it today. Perhaps something that I've said, said, yeah, this is what I've always wanted. I haven't expressed it in these terms, but this is always what's been in the back of my mind. Um, I need this journey. Well, the good news is that, that we are saved by grace through faith. And not of works, lest anyone should boast that you're starting at the right place. And if you need to be saved today, do not think for a moment that you can try to make it down this road without the divine power, or or as I frankly used to think, I remember so long ago, um, I need to first clean myself up. I need to first get some things in order. I need to first start my way. uh, And then I can come to Christ. Uh, You misunderstand. You cannot bring anything to God except for your sins. The best of those good works would be but splendid sins. And the attempt at doing it all yourself is nothing other than self-righteousness, a very poor way to start on the Christian life. You come to him as you are, and he'll never leave you there again. That's the deal. Um, By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, says the Bible. It's the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. Anything that you might have to boast of or anything that you could claim to be your contribution would be sinful, a boast before God. But the next line is, where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is a gos- the gospel order. And even here in Peter's letter, the gospel order attains. We, we, we begin with him reminding us what God has done for us in verses 3 and 4, the knowledge of God that we've received. This is what God has done, you remember, and therefore this is what we must do as we respond to his power and promises and make use of them. Peter makes God's gifts to us the ground of the appeal to now go on, as he says, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and so forth. So, perhaps somebody needs to hear this today. Salvation is not gained by man's effort. It's gained by believing in and laying hold of Jesus Christ. But growth in godliness is gained, verse 5, by giving all diligence and making every effort. Salvation is obtained by faith apart from works. Growth, growth is gained by adding virtue to faith and so forth, and being more diligent and eager to do so as we go. And that means that, well, salvation can be had this very day. There's no other prerequisite given. Growth, fruitfulness, productivity, maturity, assurance, the things that he mentions here, these come by growing in grace bringing fruit to maturity, participating in the divine nature by the divine power. And this is not an optional extra, so please don't misunderstand me. All Christians need this. 
Babes in Christ need not only to have birth, but growth. Not to grow is to be dead, as I said earlier. Because all of God's children grow. A point that's made a thousand ways in the Bible. James, put for his part, says, you know, a man claims to have faith but has no works. His faith, frankly, is dead. As Hebrews says, without holiness, no man will see the Lord. In Jesus' parable of the four soils, yeah, uh, it may spring up quickly, but if it doesn't bear any fruit, it's just proving that the soil was no good to begin with. Uh, Paul says, don't be deceived. The unrighteous are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. John says, don't let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. We find verses like this everywhere in the Bible, that as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. I'm not trying to sneak works in. I'm trying to put it in the gospel order. By grace, through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast, but for good works, which he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And therefore, we know them by their fruits. And God's program is to add to our faith. And this means that not one of you here can possibly be anywhere near satisfied. Not when there is, as we've just said, so much room for growth. And we all need, therefore, to join with John Newton, who wrote, I'm not what I might be. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. But I thank God I am not what I once was and can say with the great apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By faith comes salvation. Faith, the foundation, and utterly important. In fact, you'll notice that in this letter, the words uh, knowledge and know occur 11 times, especially common in the first chapter. And the program is, yeah, you need to know. But if you need to know and then grow, the program is to add to your faith now, lest, well, as the NIV translates it nicely, you would be ineffective or unproductive in your Christian life, your knowledge of Christ, lest you have no assurance at all and not make your calling or election sure. These are some of the things that he begins to bring up, and he especially is going to warn you in chapter 2 that the immorality out there has come in here and you are not going to stand firm as you ought unless you are on this path. Add to your faith. Grow. Grow up. Move up, church. Participation in the divine nature is held before us exceedingly great and precious promises have been joined with divine power. We need to get with the program. Point two, adding to our faith. Now, thirdly, the passion. Passion. You notice the uh, general passionate tone in this letter, in the portion I read, but especially as he seeks now... um, to instill this passion in his readers. Giving all diligence, verse 5, the NIV says, making every effort. Same idea here. 
Or again, then he comes back to it in verse 10. Be more diligent. Well, if you're already giving all diligence, how can you, give, how can you make it even more diligent? Okay, more than we are, certainly. Someone will ask, well, hold on a second. If, if, we, if we said that this is by divine power, by God's power, that we're going to be renewed and transformed. What's, what's all this about being diligent, making every effort? Uh, well, here, Don, Don Carson helped me with a nice short explanation of this as he wrote, quote, the biblical pattern is neither let go and let God, nor God's done his bit, and now it's all up to you. But rather, since God is powerfully at work in you, you yourself must make every effort, as Paul said, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. End quote. We're not going to be working at our salvation, but we are certainly going to be working out our salvation, for God is at work in us. Um, as usual, people, it's 100% God and 100% man. We've studied this with the doctrines of grace and other things many times. Somehow the 100% God is primary and, and has its working, and therefore we, re- we read for this very reason, as Paul puts it, for this very reason, it's 100% man in working it out. It's not 50-50 or anything like that. It's 100% God who's doing it and 100% man. So, so Paul can, can, for his part, say... I worked harder than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Grasp the paradox, 100% God, 100% man. It may not be great mathematics, you engineers, but it certainly fits very nicely in the heart. Well, um, when I was a younger Christian, you see, I had people telling me that we're not supposed to be exerting ourselves or working hard to grow spiritually, and that if you are, if you are striving, then then, brother, you are not resting in Christ, I was told. You you need to just yield yourself to Christ and abide in Him, and He will then give you victory and produce fruit and holiness in me, victorious Christian living. It came with an appeal to Jesus' words about the vine and the branches from John 15, I referred to earlier. A branch, I was told, doesn't have to struggle or strive to bear fruit. It effortlessly abides in the vine, and the life of the vine flows through it to the branch, resulting in fruit. Lucky branch. It all sounds so easy for it, right? Actually, I don't know if it's so easy for a branch. I've never asked a branch if it's quite so easy to bear fruit. Nevertheless, this I know from referring to many other Bible passages uh, on this theme, besides John 15, which is true uh, so far as it goes. But Colossians 1.29, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which also works mightily within me. See how it's put together. Striving, yet it's his power. Working harder than them all, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. Hebrews 12, verse 4, talks about a striving against sin. In so many places, the New Testament uses the analogy of racing or agonizing or fighting to picture the Christian life. Fighting is not effortlessness. Or if, it, if it's effortlessness for your opponent, it's going to be a lot of fun. 
<laughs> because fighting is battle. And it's a battle call to make every effort. Well, more than that, even more diligence. Are, are you applying all diligence to grow by God's power, by the divine power, to participate in the divine nature, to fulfill those great, exceedingly great and precious promises? Are you giving all diligence? Are you making mental effort? Are you taking time to grow spiritually? Are you wrestling where do you need to grow? Are you putting off those sins which you have hitherto not been putting off? Are you working out a plan to get there? Are you reading things that are stretching you and going to the hard questions in the Bible? If you're on a spiritual autopilot, that is not applying all diligence. Not certainly when God is giving for his part such great power and promises. You need to give appropriate diligence. And for this very reason, Peter says, we are to give all diligence. Because what else would be appropriate? Uh, years ago, uh, a man named Crowfoot, the chief of the Blackfoot Indian Nation in Alberta, gave the Canadian Pacific Railroad permission to cross their tribal lands, to lay the track from Medicine Hat to Calgary. And in th uh, thanks, in return, um, among other things, the railroad gave Crowfoot a lifetime pass to ride on their railway anywhere he wanted to go, anytime. And he was so appreciative and so taken by the gift, he, he put it on a, in a leather case and he wore it around his neck the rest of his life. But interestingly, there was no evidence that he ever used that pass to travel anywhere. And, and maybe too often Christians are just like him, happy, receiving such a gift, thankful, grateful, but not availing ourselves mightily of, of this unlimited divine power and the exceedingly great and precious promises to go and to go and to go. Don't be like Chief Crawfoot and never use what you've been given. In conclusion, um, one, one critical unbeliever who had observed many Christians wrote something that uh, hurt when I read it. He called the Christian life, in his view, quote, an initial spasm followed by chronic inertia. Ouch. Not for us, brothers and sisters. Not for us. There is so much more ahead. There is so much more to do. So, mu so many more things to become, more virtue, more knowledge, more self-control, more perseverance, more godliness, more brotherly kindness, more love, much, much, much more. And we'll obviously not in this life and world become anywhere near the partakers of the divine nature that we will soon. But that's not to say that we can't go so much further than we are. Maybe you're back to school hoping to know more so that you might become more. And you're giving all diligence. Oh, you're giving some diligence. Let's put it that way. And that'll carry you through maybe a, an interesting career. I don't know. A few more years. Help provide. That's great. We're talking about participating in the divine nature. Employing divine power with precious promises that will take us where we truly need to go. Not just to have 
a living, but a life. It's, it's move-up time. It's time to grow. It's time to take action appropriate for your situation to identify what to add to your faith, this or that. You're never too old to grow up. Pablo Caslas was considered the greatest cellist ever to live. When Pablo was 95 years old, somebody asked him why he continued to practice six hours a day. He answered, because I think I'm making progress. <laughs> well, if you're not making spiritual progress, it's not that you're well-established, it's that you're stuck in the mud. You need to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as I said earlier, if you need that anchor of hope to begin with that Jesus gives, come and see me and share that decision with me, and I'll be of help to you today. Or perhaps God is calling you to join the church or to work out your faith by serving God in some way here or some other thing. Happy to be of any assistance to you. But it's time to go. Get out of the mud. The, the, the Romans had a word uh, that they used in rhetoric and other things. Uh, excelsior, which uh, means um, even higher, or uh, sometimes in context, ever upward. They used it in their literature and their speeches to call their audience upward and onward. So I give you this call as we begin our study of Second Peter with this call in mind, brothers and sisters, excelsior, excelsior. Let's pray. Even higher, ever upward, we long to behold something of such power made manifest, such promises fulfilled in us, such divine nature, oh, that we've only had the smallest taste of, but boy, did we live. We, we pray, our Father, that as we consider such things, as we make such a study of your word, that this life-giving word, by your Spirit, may produce divine growth for your glory and for our joy, which we trust to the same end. In Jesus' name.